G'day, you're listening to the Big Breakdown Podcast with Chris Stafford and Harrison Marshall. Take it away, fellas. Hello and welcome along to Season 2 of the Big Breakdown Podcast, where we are delving into the minds of serial-winning coaches, and today we are looking at philosophy. We have an exciting guest, uh, we have Phil Davies. Um, Harrison, how are you feeling about it? Good, I'm excited for this one. He's, he's a well-travelled man, shall we say, in the in the world of rugby union, and yeah, I'm, I'm genuinely, it's, once again, we've got a, a stellar guest, and look, I'm really looking forward to it, hopefully, it should be, um, a, a stellar conversation. Um, but no, I'm, yeah, I'm good. How are you? How are you? Good, mate. I'm, I'm again excited about this, Phil. I've, I've known Phil sort of for the last sort of year through the work here at Beckett. He's um, great to speak to, and I think that a lot of people, especially on this this idea of philosophy, I think there'll be a lot of things that people can can benefit from it. Should we uh, should we should we get him introduced? Yes, yes. Take it away. Phil Davies is a former Wales international and international rugby coach. He spent playing career at Clenethley, where he won the Welsh Cup five times and also captained the club. He had 46 caps for Wales, starring in their Five Nations Triumph in 1995. In 1996, he made the transition into coaching, taking up a role with Leeds Tykes, where he led them from National 3 to the Premiership and also guided them to a Power Gen Cup victory in 2005 and also qualified for the Heineken Cup. He's also had coaching roles with the Scarlets, Cardiff Blues, Worcester, RGC, Wales and 20s, and coached Namibia to two World Cups in 2015 and 2019. He's now rejoined Leeds Tykes as he tries to take them back from National 1 up to the Championship, and he joins us today to talk about philosophy. Phil, how are you? Good, Chris. Harrison, yes. Thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to having a good uh, good old chat. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. No, it's, uh, it's great to have you on, Phil. So the, the theme for this episode, we're looking at coaching philosophy. Um, I think it's quite a, an interesting area and I think with the experience you've got, it would be quite good to, to delve into that. So I think what would be good sort of straight off the bat, if you could just sort of give us a bit of an overview of your coaching philosophy. Yeah, it's, um, I think I, start, I think I've been 35 years, I think, in a game now at top level and, and I've been involved at various levels underneath elite rugby sort of championship level in England um, championship level in, in Wales and also the, the level three so I've got a pretty decent level of experience as a player I led you know I led Clashley for six years and you know I've been coaching for the last 20 years so I've had a, a fair understanding of how to lead and I've been coached by some brilliant coaches I've been coached by some interesting people as well and I've been involved with some interesting coaches as well so over that period I think what I've learned is it's so important to have a a people-centred approach or player-centred if you like development driven and then competition ready so you you know you're, you're you always know your players or get to know your players not just on the field but off the field and what makes them tick and know about their families and you know their work-life balance if they are semi-pro for example and then try to develop and put you know good monitoring good analysis uh, good coaching practices in place so people can see that they're developing you know give them targets give them ideas of what success looks like for the team and, and and what are the key parts they play within that, their key roles within that. 
uh, and then make sure that they're ready to play in the competition that they're ready, whether it's a Rugby World Cup or whether it's a, a Premiership match or a Heineken Cup match. Give them an understanding of what that competition is and, and prepare them and get them ready for it. So it's 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 people-centred, development-driven and competition-ready. That's my philosophy. And when I put programmes together or when we put programmes together, the coaching staff or the key staff at uh, a club or an international team, those are the three real key elements that underpin our planning, uh, our, our our process and our our operation pro- operational process. Sorry, and then our our review process, Chris. You know, so that that's it in a nutshell, really. How's that sort of developed over the years in Phil? Because obviously you, you came through as a player through the, the amateur era and then when it turned professional and then your first coaching was at Leeds Tykes originally back in... 19- it was, yeah, back in 1986. Yeah. It, seems, it seems, another, seems another lifetime ago, a quarter of a century ago, but I was a brilliant experience. It was the first thing I really noticed. I, I As I said, I'd led Tennessee for six years Um during my playing career and Captain Wales and all that stuff. But during that period, although you're leading and, and you, you speak to the coaches more, so you, you, you get involved in more of the sort of uh, the strategic thinking or the outline thinking of what clubs and coaches are trying to do, you're never really involved in the planning of it. You're a recipient of that plan. And you can make comments and, and obviously put your... Your ten bobs worth in, but you're never really the architect. So what I when I first went to Leeds, I thought, flip it, this is a bit different now because I I became the architect overnight, and you really start appreciating then what the planning stages of of putting a program together because you you gotta you gotta think of forty people, not just think how. I would fit into a plan. You actually have to be the architect, as I say, of that plan. So that was a big difference early on and a big challenge, I must admit, you know. And and as I've gone along in my career, I've been more understanding of where strength and conditioning fits, coach, other coaches fit, physios, analysis, doctors, etc. And I and I believe very early on that coaching is a multidisciplinary programme. It's a holistic approach, and you can't do it in silos. You've got to do it with with a key group of people, and then you do it with with a wider group of people. So that's where the people-centred, development-driven and competition-supported ideas started to come from and have, have sort of been cemented over the last maybe 15 years in particular, you know. Is there is there like a is there a key moment within that within that history in which you you know you really began to appreciate and, and take on board the the different elements of of that coaching team with that whether that being physiotherapists and, and strength conditioners? Uh, it's a good question, actually, Harrison. It's a really good question. Um, there been a couple of experiences, really. First was a, a wet. No, it was actually snowing at Leeds Carnegie Leeds. Leeds met at the time, and we changed in the porter cabins, not where the porter cabins are now, right, where some of the new buildings actually are. And I got the boys running around the campus, right, because I was so worn out with what was going on on a Saturday. Like, I don't mind losing if you're outskilled, but never be outwilled, if that makes sense. So the, it was a bit of an education process going on at Leeds at the time with me. And then after then, 
There was a few boys like Phil Griffin, in fact, Stuart Lancaster, Dan Eddy. A few of the boys came to see me after and they said, look, Phil, we we totally understand and respect what you're trying to do. And I said, first of all, we want to get in the premiership and that will seem the light years away at the time. But they, to be fair to them, they made me appreciate because I came from Tanesi, which is a top level of rugby and playing for Wales, a top level of rugby at that time, professional rugby in today's money, you know. Uh, and, and we sat down and I thought, you know what, fair enough. I totally respect and understand that. And I started, you know, I always had an empathy with people and with, with the players, but I started to get to know, um, you know, what Phil Griffin's job was at Fox's Biscuits, actually, at the time. Stuart's job at Kettlethorpe High, where he was teaching at the time. So that was one experience. And then as you go along, another one more recently was in Africa and where you go to a country where you have an understanding of high performance of tier one level might be there where you're playing ball and play for 46, uh, 40 minutes, for example, to their understanding of high performance, which is club rugby, a 22 minutes ball in play. So there's a huge gap there. So that was another sort of, that was just a reaffirmment that we were on the right track so it's it's really made, it's about understanding people's circumstances if they're not professional or or and understanding the context in which they operate and the resources that are available to them and to you at any one time if it's not fully professional. And even when it's fully professional, it's it's a lot easier to get people on board because you know they're there day in day out it's easy but when it's not fully professional it's about understanding the context of each individual person's operational uh time limits i suppose you know that's quite interesting because when you went to leeds they're obviously national three was it the old national three maybe and then premiership so the lads would have then been semi-pro through to pro in that time did anything change in that moment for when they did go full-time in terms of sort of how you were or the expectations that you had with them? Or was it more of a, an aligned, agreed, everyone on the same hymn sheet type transition? Yeah, well, I would submit, Chris, what we did after a while, we, we created a real connection of what Yorkshire was all about. There's loads of similarities with Yorkshire uh, rugby and Welsh rugby, actually, or Yorkshire people and Welsh people. You know, they all they, they all like a moan, they all like to sing, they all like a drink. So there's lots of real brilliant qualities. They all like people, or they all like to see people who got a bit of grit about them and work hard. And uh, so we, it's always about when you put a team on the field. For me, it's about reckon people in the stand can recognise the qualities of the team in themselves, if that makes sense. So we try to design a team, you know, we try to create a call to create an environment that displayed the qualities people in Yorkshire and Leeds could recognize with, you know, and that's, and that's how we, how we slowly but surely built the squad. And when we were trying to sign players, that's why the Scottish fitted in well in, in Leeds. That's why the South Africans fitted in well, because they had high work ethic, you know, uh, physical players, you know, the Africanas. So it was always then looking at our, our recruitment that fitted the, the the Leeds mentality or the Yorkshire mentality, you know, um, or the Namibia mentality or the Worcester mentality or the Blues or the Scarlets mentality uh, or the Rouen mentality in France, which is the Normandy area of France, you know. So, it yeah, it was always about 
having that contextual understanding and making sure people understood their roles and responsibilities within that, you know. And it's about connection. Then you can get alignment. Then you build relationships and then you get performance. So those are the four key steps, if you like, if you wanted to summarise how I believe now you create culture and good teams. So when you do go into a, um, a new environment and you go in and you, and you meet the members of staff or the players that you potentially go in and working with, what are the kind of like non-negotiables that you'd want to see from the other members of staff uh, and, and kind of the players that you're working with that, that you expect them to, them to hit for, for you to be able to imprint your culture? Um, team spirit, work ethic. And then it's, it's, you know, it's, it's actually defining what that looks like, really, uh, Harrison. And then, you know, b- but before you, you, you get to that, really, you've got to win the hearts and minds of people. Uh, and that's where the connection is. You know, what connects us? Everybody will. Nobody is too excited about plans, mate. <laughs> you know, but but everybody can be connected by symbols, by colours, by a cause, by a movement. Uh, and, and it's going into those areas and, and or, or parts of the country, different parts of the world, and looking at what connects people. Like in Namibia, it was massive about... Uh, our purpose was, and the players came up with it, it was all about uh, striving for excellence, pride and identity through the game of rugby because they wanted to do their country proud and they wanted to do their families proud. Uh, and, and we came up with a house in Namibia, which was discipline, contribute, attitude, respect. So those were the four key values that underpinned that purpose. And then when it came to st- when it came to performance, we said, look, if we want to be creditable at the World Cup to make the country proud and make your families proud, we need to we needed to look like this physically, and we needed to look like this technically, tactically, and then the mentality then was all built around the purpose and the self awareness. And of themselves, their own, we develop their self-awareness. And by developing self-awareness, then you create a higher level of awareness of others. And that's how we actually set it all up, you know. So it's it's hearts and minds first, mate, and then it's strategy and plan second. <laughs> but the non-negotiables for me are hard work and team spirit uh, and, and being a good bloke and knowing your role in the team. That's basically it. Ultimately, I think I'd agree with that. And have you got any examples of when you did go into into Namibia to, to kind of begin to understand the culture of of a country that's you know, for, for a lot of us foreign, and we just can't even envision what it is like over there? Um, so, have you got any uh, any examples in which you know you try to embrace and and immerse yourself within that within that Namibian culture? I'm a few pints. <laughs> 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 the beer, right? The beer, the beer, and oh, wine. You know, South Africa is well, as is France, of course, and, and Wales, New Zealand is famous for its wine. But right, Namibian, Namibia, right? Namibian brewing is all done under German law, um, and there's no additives, no preservatives, right? So you can get absolutely 
smashed on 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 the sauce one day, but then you can wake up the day after feels bright as a button because there's no additives or preservatives. So that helped in a way in in lots of conversations. You'd have a few a few beers, right? But in all seriousness, that 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 was actually part of it. But I knew there was a big German influence in in Namibia. I knew there was a big uh, uh, Afrikaner influence, obviously. So I sort of studied a little bit and spoke to people who'd actually worked in those countries uh, who I knew. Um, some of them were in a business context. Some of them were in a, in a in a sporting context. So that was the first thing. And then when I went in there, then we we, we created a, um, a conference, if you like. So we said, right, what's your, what's your uh, understanding of high performance? So they went, da, 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 and I said, okay, this is our understanding of high performance. Okay, fine. So then we had a baseline of thinking, what does Namibian rugby look like? Oh, flair, uh, courage, fine. Okay, great. That's 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 another thing. You know, what, what are you most proud of? Or our country, our flag, um, our families. Okay, there's some other ideas. So we started, a, you know, we started to create the jigsaw, Harrison, if you like, and then we started then to say, right, okay, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Well, we want to qualify for the World Cup and we want to win a game. So I said, okay, great, fine. Okay, but what, is that, what does that look like to you? Oh, we're going to be motivated and we're going to do this, we're going to do that, whatever, whatever. So I said, okay, fine. But motivation only lasts for so long. So, you know, motivation lasts, you know, it's it's momentum before motivation, not not motivation, again, momentum. You know, motivation and, and moving forward, give um, direction and moving forward gives you motivation, not waiting for something to motivate you to move forward. That makes sense. So we started to look at all those different things. What were the standards of... Um, some of the top tier two teams between number 15 and number 20 in the world. Because in Namibia, we were number 24 when we started. So we, we we started to look then at performance metrics of how teams, what teams looked like and where we actually were and where the gaps were. So we created a gap analysis and then we used a traffic light system over four years to close the gaps. So we went from red players to amber players, amber players to uh, green players. So green players were 80% towards the target, amber were 50 plus percent, and red were under 50%. And then we looked at performance metrics of uh, high-speed meters, strength in the gym, power. Then we looked at tackle technique. We looked at basic skills. We looked at um, ability to keep the ball, you know, all that sort of stuff became our sort of strategic and operational plan uh, and our hearts and minds plan in order to move forward to get be competitive in 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 the World Cup in Japan. And the first 30 minutes, 38 minutes against New Zealand, 10-9 was the score, was five years work, culmination of that work. The second half was a bit more ugly on the scoreboard, by the way. But we gained, we kept the ball for over 12 times. Uh, we set a goal, sorry, to keep the ball for six phases, more than six times. And we did that 12 times against the world champions uh, because we wanted incremental increases in performance to go into the fourth game against Canada. Because they were 23 and we were, uh, sorry, we were 23 and they were 21. 
and we felt we had a chance to win those that game. We didn't have a, we weren't going to beat Italy, New Zealand, and South Africa, but we could get performance increases to give us the confidence to know we could score tries, we can keep the ball, we can stop malls. When we went and played against a team, we felt we had a chance to beat. You know, so that's how we did that. I'm not sure if I was too long, but it, that's how we did it. We 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 summing it up. We created a conference to get a baseline of thinking what high performance was between everybody. Then we, then we understood what success looked like. Then we 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 understood where we were, and then we created a plan to close the gap. With the sort of the understanding of where you were from a, a playing perspective, did you engage the players in that process so they had a better understanding of what they needed to build on themselves to get up to that green if they're in red? Or did they help set the metrics for it or were they educated around it? Not in the beginning. It was education. So we thought we had a four-year plan, three, four-year plan. The first bit, I said, look, this is going to be painful. It's going to be directive. And you might not like it, but... There is a justification why we are doing it. And then as the self-awareness, we started, we, we used some psychometric testing. Uh, it was a Gallup Strength Finder, which is all about understanding your strengths. Um, so in the first instance, we said, look, it's directive. Then we would engage with the players. The second part of the process was engaging with them and talking to them and getting them to understand our planning. And then it was more, it became more player-led than asking them what the values looked like to them, what was the purpose, um, look, what did the purpose look like to them, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot of, it was quite autocratic in the beginning, but then as we move forward, it became more, demogra- uh, more democratic, if, if, if you like. And, uh, yeah, and, um, we, you know, I loved it in the end, mate. I loved the players. I got to know their families, and it was just amazing. But you have to have, sometimes when you go into a sort of a moving feast, or you go into a lot of grey, you've got to create that that black and white in the first instance and move forward. And then, you know, you build from there, you know? I think, I think that, I mean, everything you've said there feels brilliant. And, and it is, it is something that even that's happening at the top level, but it's something that you can actually replicate even at the sort of the grassroots level. And that's what we're trying to sort of achieve with this is that, it takes a little bit of time to manage it, but you can actually come up with these ideas and run these processes still in that that amateur club environment. If you buy, get the players buy in and and educate them on it. Is, is there any advice that if if there was a coach listening at that, that level that wanted to try it? Is there any advice you'd give them about how to start it from working with players that you only see twice a week? You know, when we started in Namibia, I'll, I'll go on to that point quickly. You know, we were scrummaging at five thirty in the morning. Because boys were working, because we needed to upskill the home player base. We needed to expand the home player base. Because when we went to England, you know, we struggled to get 31 players on a plane uh, of a relevant level to compete uh, in, in, the, in the World Cup in 2015. But by the time we got to 2019, we had 75 players in a, in, a, in, a, in a high performance group with an average age of 24 and, and 65% of them were actually then playing domestic rugby in Namibia and playing Curry Cup as well. So um, you, can, you can do it if people are working. But if you, if you, if you got, going back to your question, if you go back to um, players 
uh, or uh, teams that you coach twice a week. You've got to look at what connects people at the club and then what are your priorities to, uh, you know, um, to deliver, or what is your game plan, sorry, and then what are the priority, your coaching priorities to deliver that game plan? You can do that with the players, of course. And then you you prioritise Tuesday as uh, maybe your core skills uh, and, 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 and units and, and transitions, your, your high-intensity stuff, and then Thursday becomes your core skills and your, and your team organisation session. And then you obviously play on a play on a Saturday, so it, it's all about core skills, transitions, and then your 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 team organisation basically. And you've just got to prioritise then um, when you deliver them over the course of the two uh, two sessions, Chris. It can be done, it can be done for sure, as you know, as you've helped us with what we've been trying to do at the club since I've gone back there. You know, so it can be done. You can't have two and a half hour training sessions because the, the players these days, you've got no chance. So you've got to look at 50, 60, 70 minutes and maximise uh, the movement in those sessions. And you can only do that when you prioritise. So you've got to prioritise, you've got to know, you've got to win the arts and minds of the club to know what the club stands for and what the players want. Uh, and then you've got to prioritise, you've got to identify a game plan and then prioritise your coaching uh, and do it you know, within 140 minutes a week, ready for that 80 minutes on a Saturday. It's always the challenge of, of, of coaching at a grassroots, uh, grassroots level. And um, I think, uh, yeah, I think well, what we talked about just, just then is it can also be applied as well in terms of you know, if you're going into a new club, whether it's grassroots, whether it's elite, it's still important to, to, to get to know the culture that's around the club and around the area. And like you said, getting to know the players, you know, why are why are they there? If and and actually success might be different for, for, for each individual player, but also different for each club. And we know we've discussed it in season one where you know some amateur clubs, you know, for them success is getting thirty players down that then go into the bar afterwards and and, and you know and create a, and create that kind of culture. Um, what would be what would be your advice for coaches that are not always aligned with where they want to get the club and the players? Um, in terms of you know, say if you want, say say if a coach wanted to be more success driven in terms of their results, but you know the players might not, you know that doesn't matter as much for them. What would you have you got any advice for for for, for you know if a coach does differ with with where they want to get the players and where the players want to be? Don't take the job. <laughs> It, it it's 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 one of the it's one of the, the most one of the more painful lessons that I've learned in the last twenty five years in professional coaching is don't go for the next job or any job. Go for the job that where there's a cultural fit. You know, the the club and yourself see things like I've had a discussion with a club more recently where um getting bums on seats and growing a player base at the moment is more successful. Uh, there's more relegation and promotion a promotion in this league so it's a bit easier but they're all about entertainment and growing uh, a fan base and growing a player base than it is to win week in week out they want to win games of course they do but you know if they win two out of four or or, or, or one out of three that's all right at the minute because they want to grow and they it's entertaining and scoring four tries and they may give or scoring three tries and the opposition might score five is is or whatever it's it's about entertainment for them at this moment in time but you know if you if you go and take a coaching role 
Um, you've got to you've got to align. You've got to connect with the club, with the with the with the principles, or with the the values, or with the ambitions, or whatever that might be. And that is so so important. Otherwise, Harrison, it, it doesn't really work. I don't think. And and because it, you drive yourself mad, and you drive everybody else mad in the same instance. Because there's you know you want to win every week, and the players just want to go in train or sometimes not even train just go and play enjoy if they win brilliant you're going to have a boat race or you're going to have a sing song whatever the case is and you're going to have a steak bake after the game or you know they might be a bit disappointed. The first couple of pints are not so good, but all of a sudden they get the enthusiasm up then and then they start having a steak bake and they start drinking and having a sing song. So it's just, you know, it, it's it's really about enjoyment and, and, and you know, societal, you know, societies change big time uh, and people want gratification and enjoyment, you know, yesterday for sometimes for minimum amounts of effort. So you've got, as a coach, the suggestion my advice would be is find a club who, if you want to win as a coach, find a club who wants to help you win and you want to help them win. If you want to be a social coach and a social animal and have great fun, go to the club. And then if they want to give you a few quid as well, you know, uh, all the better, because that's what happens at all levels. You know, players and coaches get paid by clubs who, who, um, who you know who want to win, but then they don't actually put the framework around the coach and the players to help them win. So you know you, you've got to find what do you want to be. You know what do you want to be. You know you, you can't be. You know you can be a twenty-five stone powerlifter, but you can't be a twenty-five stone sprinter. I don't think anyway. I don't think you can win the hundred meters. So you know and and you know and. You can't win a Formula One race with a, with a Mini Cooper, can you? So you know it, it's it's making sure that you you know you do your ambition. You know you, you you match the club's ambition. You get the tools to do the job. You know. I think it's great advice as well, to be fair, because again, if it goes in and you end up having that sort of battle against each other, then that's when they run the risk of players leaving, and a club is only as good if there's players there to actually play. And I think at the moment, especially coming through the the pandemic, where we're, we're starting to get the season going again in September, there's going to be a lot of players that have sort of maybe left the game or is in two minds to come back. And their first experience when they come back to the club that they've been at is going to be really important to get them going again. My, my, exactly. My, my first club, Seven Sisters, right? we had a youth team there and that's how I got to play rugby, really. Um, I played a bit in school and played to the Welsh school boys at under 16 but the club was responsible for me playing because they had a real good youth team and I was playing with my mates basically playing with all my mates and we had a great time we used to go fighting the other teams across the other valley and all the rest of it <laughs> you know on, on a sad it was brilliant it was absolutely brilliant but when professional rugby kicked in they started paying players and anyway the long and short of it was you know um, the club was quiet after half past five and a Saturday because everybody was, you know, buggering off home to their own villages and clubs at the time because our club was might be paying more than their club was at their village club at the time. And we lost the youth team. And the club made a conscious decision and said, we're not paying anybody anymore. We're not doing it. And over the last 
X amount of years. They refurbished the club. You know, they do a few other things now, weddings and, and you know, Sunday lunches and all that. And they've got a youth team back. They've got a vibrant women's team there. And the first team is, is perform, you know, is performing again. And they don't pay anybody, but they've got a real good village uh, mentality. It's a great place to be in. It's become the focal part of the village again, like it was Crikey Moses. 30-odd, five years ago, when I was started playing, which is what, what it's all about, really. You know, it's about it's about community and it's about everybody wants to be, everybody wants to have a sense of belonging, don't they? Everybody wants to feel valued, um, you know, and they want a sense of safety and camaraderie and all that stuff. And that's what community spirit gives. And that's why us, that's why the British are so good when it comes to under pressure. We all, you know, we... We get past the brass tax, which is looking after each other, basically. Definitely. So, um, just with that, so that trying to gain a community spirit, um, and then you, you talked about wanting success, especially in these high-performance environments. You know, how do, how do you balance trying to get that togetherness where where you get community, as well as that competitive edge to make sure the players are are pushing each other to to almost you know win win the sh- win the number for the for the start win the starting number a, a weekend. You know how do you, how have you found that balance and and what have you done to to get to try and balance to get that balance between between the two of them? Clarity, purpose, direction. You know it's as it's as simple as that. It is is having you know the clarity about what you're trying to achieve. Um, and that comes to the connection. It's like, like I said, in Namibia, the flag was important to the players, right? So the colours, you know, the colours of the flag were yellow, the sun. So we had sun up mentality, right? So the, the sun up, you know, sunrises and sundowners in Africa, right? Are sensational. They are in many parts of the world. But we always are. Look, sun up, sunrise mentality, heads up, heads up. If the boys were down, said, just look at the flag, look at the flag, because the sun was 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 there. You know, different colours. You know, green was green for go. You know, we're going towards our target. So it was always very positive things. And then, you know, the fish eagle on the jersey was a real, like the three lions in football or the red rose in rugby. That was a real symbol of pride for them, you know, when they put that thing on their chest. So they knew, you know, what the purpose was. They were clear about things. They were clear about the direction because they they knew what success looked like. And they knew where we were now, and they knew their part within that. So you know, it is about clarity, be, you know, being clear about roles, purpose, direction. Those those are the the key things, really, Harrison, that you've got to work towards. And you know, and 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 you just got to spend time on those things. The technical, tactical bit for me in rugby is easy. You know, it's just you know, and the physical bit. Anybody can go in the gym and get bigger, faster, stronger. They can do it for a while, but to get them to do it for, you know, the next stage and the next stage or the next while and the next while in order to hit the targets is is all about getting mentality, the mentality, the mindset right and getting the, well, growth mindset. And you do that by touching their hearts, you know, and their heart, it's hearts and minds then. Uh, and, and those are the key things, really, clarity, purpose and direction. And you've got to spend do it, time doing that. You've got to identify what the key parts of that are. So there's there's on the there's on the field and there's off the field, and it's all about you know people well being. That's high people centred. You know that's where that comes in really for you, and that's where development driven, and that's where competition ready comes in. You know, just on sort of with that well being bit that you sort of touched on there. 
Phil, is uh, one of the things within this season sort of focused and linked to the zero uh, winning coaches paper that we, we we had Sergio on to chat about. One of the things within that for philosophy was this notion of sort of this work-life balance. And I remember Richard Cockrell saying a few years, a couple of years ago that, you know, coaching is a lifestyle. It's with you 365 days. You know, if you he hates losing more than he enjoys winning because it just eats at him. <laughs> Obviously, with the, with the jobs that you've had and the roles that you've had, how have you sort of managed that, especially when you've been sort of in Wales, travelling to Africa, or, you know, even now you're, you're sort of in Wales coming up to Leeds. How do you manage that work-life balance? I've, um, at times, Chris, badly, you know, I'm quite a, I'm quite a passionate type of person and um, I've, I've got, you know, a thousand times better because I think I know, you know, I've worked really hard over the years, my self-awareness and my understanding of of how my behaviour can actually affect people at times. Um, you know, sometimes over my career, I wanted success for certain players more than they wanted it for themselves. So it's all, it's all understanding that. So for me, it's having time. I'm, I'm a I'm a planner. I love to be planned and organised. And when I am, that's when I'm at my best and at my calmest. And, you know, and I just carve out time for um, meditation. Now, would you believe I found out how to breathe properly, which is a good thing. So so I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I, it's important for me to be calm and for me to be important for me to be calm. It's important that I have balance in my life. So my family are important. You know, nature is very important. Walking, you know, I love going to the forest. You can talk the trees and never answer you back. So that's a good thing. I go up the mountains and, you know, so it's, it's, it's having a balance and knowing yourself and and I know that being in nature uh, being well planned being well organized you know listening to music meditating a bit nowadays I've learned that the last 12 months um you know reading I enjoy reading uh, about others success and others trials and tribulations towards success uh you know spending time with my my daughters I know they're in their 30s my daughters my granddaughter in particular so it's it's knowing yourself really, and and what are the key things that 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 keep your fuel tank um, topped up really, rather than just trying to be in a a total malaise of of winning and losing every week. It's about the process and an understanding of. Uh, trying to retain or trying to keep yourself on task because when pressure comes, pressure comes from expectation, scrutiny, circumstances. And once you know that, you can you can understand that the process is more important than the outcome. So that's how I keep calm now about results and and, and winning and losing, and it's having that balance of of knowing myself and what keeps my my petrol tank topped up. Brilliant things I mentioned, you know. Plus having a you know, going out for a nice meal when he did. I like eating. <laughs> yeah. It, it, was there a pivotal um, pivotal moment in which you, you realised and you just said to yourself, oh, I've, this is, I need to start looking after myself and looking after my own, um, you know, mental and physical well-being um, within, your, within your coaching career? Yeah, it was, I think... When I, the first time I got sacked, really, I think that was the time, I was mindful of it, you know, and my time at Leeds, I learned so much of my time at Leeds. Um, you know, when I left, I thought it was all my fault. Um, but after periods of reflection, uh, I realised 
And when I got sacked, actually, the both experiences, I felt it was my fault and went into a real man cave there. It was shambles, really. But when I when I properly reflected on it, I realised that I couldn't control lots of things. I could control certain things, and there were certain things I wish I'd controlled a little bit more uh, constructively uh, at the time. And, and that was my learning from it. The things I realised I couldn't control and couldn't influence, I, I parked and, and put it down to experience and, and learned from as well. Um, and, and, yeah, that's when that started really, Harrison, and realising that you can, you can control things, you can control certain things, you can influence certain things, and you have absolutely no control over other things. And, and that is where the importance of finding a club and people to work with that fit your sort of approach. Uh, and when he, and you can't, you can't always have that, by the way, and you're not always in a position to be choosy either, by the way, because sometimes when you're starting off with your coaching, you've got to really suck it up and, and get on with certain things, particularly professionally. If you're an amateur, it's not so bad because you have a job, you have a day job, and then you have a, a passion job, as I call it, which is your sport, your rugby. And his football, there's some amazing examples of all sorts of grassroots coaches. And I admire them immensely for the commitment they put into football, basketball, could be anything, you know. So it, it's 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 making sure that, you know, you, you have that understanding of yourself and you realise that it's not all down to you. And, you know, the king is dead, long live the king, somebody told me once. And that is a brilliant statement to understand and to not take things too seriously when you're in a win and lose scenario. Um, and it, and it's, 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 it's very, very important because it can drive you mad if you're not careful. <laughs> whatever level you're trying to do because you're passionate about it and you've got to make sure that passion is directed in the right way to keep yourself and people around you in, in a safe place <laughs> or a sane place I should say yeah I think I think that's that's always a difficult balance and I remember um, I remember listening to a podcast with um, Chris Hoy and he went and spoke to a, a, a psychologist um, and he said you know, we, sometimes you know, when we get wrapped up in sport we forget how, how trivial it can be sometimes and actually, you know, we've got to, sometimes it's it's better to think bigger picture. And actually, you know, we're dealing with human beings for a start. We're dealing with ourselves as a human being. And actually, understanding the self and understanding others is more important than 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 any other part of the sport. You like, like you said earlier, the tech, the technical and tactical things are, are the easy part of of coaching rugby. Like you know, there's so many good coaches that understand that that element of the sport but where they can where coaches can progress a little bit more it's like you've just said there you know, can we understand ourselves can we understand others and actually understanding that you know sport is just well rugby for example is just 15 men throwing around um, a bag full of air when actually when it comes when when we leave the pitch that's when you know the serious and the real the real life real life starts um, so no some, some cracking points there yeah it's it's the biggest thing I learned with the international coaching was, uh, as I said, uh, you know, clarity, purpose, direction. And and when we played New Zealand in the first game in London, and I'd known Steve Hansen for quite a number of years, and Jacques Berger, the captain at the time, knew some of the New Zealand players as well, 
through his Saracens experience. Anyway, and, and New Zealand do it. I didn't, you know, I didn't know at the time, but we went for a beer with him in the dressing room. It was brilliant. We had an amazing time. And then over the over the four years, we 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 did a lot of stuff with world rugby. We had people like John Mitchell, who was coaching the US. Eddie Jones was at, in Japan at the time, and we had Milton Hague, who was at Georgia at the time. And we had some brilliant coaches and brilliant forums. You know, Totai Kefu, God bless him, who was with Tonga. So we had some amazing get-togethers all around the world. And, and you learn so much off different people. But as you were going along, you know, the health, mental mindset, mental health, vulnerability, those words started cropping up more and more and more and more and more. And then you started listening to what the All Blacks, particularly in the lead-up, the 219 was saying, and the interviews that Steve was doing, and even some of the players. And you start realizing, you know what, you've just got to be aware of so many, you know, different areas of, and you've got to split it. And it is, you know, player welfare, player well-being, you know, mental skills, mindset. You know, that's a different thing to, you know, well-being in a way. I know the well-being helps that. And then you've got your medical, you've got your technical, tactical, you've got your physical, you know, and you've got your analysis, monitor, you've got all sorts of stuff. But you've really got to then start prioritizing what is important, you know, to get the players on the pitch in the best possible physical, mental, technical, tactical state to perform. And then when they come off, you've got to give them the environment then to do it again. And that's where, as I say, the the the, the you know the purpose, the clarity, purpose, and direction are so important. You've got to constantly be on top of that. Uh, and realise that everybody has a role and a responsibility and an accountability to make the machine work. And you can't do it on your own. <laughs> and, and anybody who thinks they can is, God bless them, they're deluded. Uh, that's where, that's where, the, that's where the, the holistic approach, the multidisciplinary uh, approach of, of coaching and high performance now has never been so more important, you know. And everybody's got to realise that. You can't say... He's in charge and he's totally accountable. It's still like that, mind. It is still like that. I'm not naive enough to think it's not. However, everybody, you know, the departmental heads, um, the, the, the 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 players, everybody has a role and a responsibility and an accountability. And the head coach has got to be behind all of that and involved in all of that. And they've got to support the head coach because ultimately he carries the can. But it's a massive team effort behind. Um, and that's what I think in the UK in particular, people uh, maybe don't want to recognise or don't understand. I don't know. But, you know, it needs to it needs to come back. It needs to get, you know, become the forefront of people's thinking. You know? So as a leader then, Phil, of sort of running one of them programmes, how, how do you manage that accountability sort of downward. So how do you find that balance between the boundaries and the accountability side with actually giving them autonomy to do stuff as well? Again, that all it comes on again, you know, clarity um, and direction. You know, the purpose is there, of course, but the clarity and direction. So, you know, if, if you're a player, for example, right, we live, a, you know, this is, this is what we want out of our game plan. This is how we're going to, how are we going to achieve it? And this is your role within it as a technical, tactical 
player, just just as an outline framework. And then I look at it like a best version of self. Right? What's the best? What, what is the best version of Chris Stafford I'm going to see on the field and off the field? And then you hold people to account in that in that respect. So you you let them understand where their role is and and and, and what it looks like. And then it's up to them to deliver it. And if they're not delivering it, you just have a discussion. And then you try and help them, you know, with certain areas that they need to get better. And then if you've got to keep having a discussion, well, you know, it's it's time to say goodbye, really. Uh, and it's the same with the staff. You, 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 it's the same with the staff. You, you, you agree everything with. You identify their role. You agree everything, and then you let them get on with it. You know, I don't know about flipping strength and conditioning. Wayne Proctor is his, he's an expert. I don't know how to diagnose, um, you know, uh, uh, diagnosis, prognosis of injuries. I don't know. You know, I just want to know on a match day, red, amber, green. Green, he can carry on. Amber, we keep an eye on him. Red, he's coming off. <laughs> you know, I don't need to know the ins and outs. I'm not going to question a physio who's been at university for six or seven years learning his, you know, learning about, physiotherapy what can I tell him I've just got to listen to him so again mate it all comes down to that 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 clarity purpose direction um that's what that's what the leader should be should be providing and 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 and, and delivering really you know and letting people get on with things yes yeah and oh, that's spot on um, I'm sure you've seen the best version of Chris on the pitch has he not shown you his try saving tackle if he did yeah yeah yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, bad actually. Oh, bad. There's a few good ones and a few and a few can improve ones. <laughs> there was a lot of can improve. I think. I think uh, watching Chris play, he's constantly in the amber. <laughs> you know what? Right. It's all, all jokes aside. You know what? Right. If you ask a player what he can do, it it'll be like a three minute conversation. You ask him what he can't do. It's an hour and a half. Well, it's an hour conversation. So that's why I like the best version. I, I don't allow them to go there for it. I said, listen, no, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Just tell me what you're good at. I'm honestly, players find it really difficult to tell you what they're good at. Oh, I, I, I think I totally agree. People are so, um, I think it's, yeah, I think people are so self-critical of themselves that, you know, they'll, 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 they'll go through themselves on a fine tooth comb, and I think even even myself as a coach, I'm, I find myself guilty of it. What kind of ways have you have you got the positives out of players when when you have those discussions? Have you, you know, how have you prized those positives more than the negatives out of them? Um, so, firstly, it's questioning really, uh, and this is something I've, I've I was pretty average at it when I started. I'm, I'm still working on good questioning and good listening skills. It's always an ongoing job, I think, for everybody. But I'll firstly, I'll ask them why they're playing. Um, you know, like with some of the Namibian boys, it was, you know, oh, I'll make my family proud, I'll make my country proud. And, you know, uh, and some players I've coached have been fulfilling their father's dreams, not their dreams as such. So it's just getting to find out why they're actually playing the game, <clears throat> firstly. So then there's a few triggers that you can push or whatever the case might be. And um, like I remember once we were in Japan, I was coaching a Wales in the 20s and I was coaching some of the lads um, uh, who uh, I played with their fathers. And in some of the team talks, I would I would say, look, I know how proud 
so and so is of you. I know how proud your dad is of you, or whatever. And I could see how emotional. So it's getting to know why they're playing the game, basically. You know, and 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 giving. I'm finding some emotional uh, trigger that can that can um, get them going. And then secondly, then is talking about um, you know when have they really enjoyed rugby the most or. Uh, have they got any particular symbol um, when they, you know, what 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 really gives them uh, a really happy feeling of, you know, of an experience they've had? Was a jersey where they played with their mates when they were in school and they had a brilliant time and they had this kit? Or was it a pair of boots that somebody bought them that they felt really good in and they scored a few tries or kicked a few goals or whatever? So so then it's it's trying to it's it's, it's it's all those personal things to find some forms of connection of why they're playing the game and then asking them when they've really had some good experiences and what did those experiences look like when they had them. Um, and then you go to that, as I said, then that best version, are they a good tackler, are they a good passer, whatever the case might be. So it's building really a real positive, um, emotional uh, uh uh, connective type piece that that you can help them um, move forward with Harrison. You know if that makes sense. That's how I tend to try and do it when uh, uh, when I when I'm you know when I'm trying to grow players. You know, or when I start with them. You know, it takes time. Yeah. Can't just go in and start. Yeah, you know, I know a lot of coaches go in and start trying to show players how much you know. But the game is a killer move here, or is a killer line out over there, or is a killer this. Uh, Okay, fine, but the players, you know, the players, that's fine in, in their first instance. But then when you start winning and losing, and the reality of the is peeing down on a Tuesday night and it's freezing cold, are, are they going to turn up for the killer move then? I don't know. I'm not so sure. So you've got to give them a, a real purpose and a, and a cause to, to, to come every week. And that is because they know you love them, <laughs> you care about them. It's simple, really. Well, it's not simple, but it's, it's a big part. Well, that was one of the key things that we we emphasised quite a lot in in our last season was the, the the actual importance of understanding who's in front of you, who your players are, because that is the driving force. We, we touched on it earlier that you know a club is only as good as the number of people that they've they've got playing, and if you can inspire them and want them to be there, because you know the chances are you're going to get that mixed bag if you're in a club game, a mixed bag training. There's going to be the odd you know, second, third team player that's coming down to training just to escape the wife for a couple of hours that, you know, might not necessarily be there at that tactical level that you might expect them to be, but it's how you manage that expectation and mm. still make them feel valued, make them feel part of it because that's what's going to keep them coming back. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's... it's they're, they're, at certain, How can I put it simply? At certain levels of the game, it, you, more, you need more... You need more doers and thinkers, and then as you go up, as you go up the levels, then you know because it it does become so cerebral at times in preparation because of the analysis that goes on. British Lions v South Africa recent Test series, for example, and you know the the, the you know and the the further you know the lower levels, you need to put a lot more intellectual property into the framework. And at top level, you still need a framework, but your intellectual property as a coach can become less and less she becomes more about 
collaboration and facilitation at that stage. Uh, because, you know, like I'm not going to tell Sam Warbert and how to deal with a breakdown, for example. Let, get on with him, mate. You know, you need to create a framework so everybody's on the same page about what happens, you know, if you're ball carrying. As the, as, the, as the carrier hits the deck, you know, you need the first cleaner needs to be threat focused then ball focus, for example. Then the next then the next support player is more maybe ball focus, for example, make sure you're securing that ball, etc. So things like that. But ultimately when it comes to the intellectual property and understanding of timing and body angles and different techniques, you then rely you know on world class players to deliver that. But so but when you go further down, you've actually got to coach them. Uh, a little bit more to get that technical aspect and that's where you know core skills are so important um you know transition uh practices in terms of reaction to go from attack to defense i both sides of the ball and then your team organization comes last but what do you see a lot of the time is team organization first um i know you need that of course you do but it's all about are they skillful under pressure are they able to react quickly to one situation or the other? And then you bolt your organization on because it's easy to organize a team. Just, you know, you just, you, know, you go there, you go there, you go there. But when it becomes fluid, it's a bit different because, <laughs> they, 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 you know, they're challenged with a bit of oxygen. I know that problem. Even trying to put my own game plan that I knew what we were doing, I still struggled, didn't Harrison? You <laughs> knew, knew both then, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's when uh, yeah, Harrison left me on for 80 minutes when I'm not played rugby for two and a half years. <laughs> Nearly killed me. <laughs> that's, uh, that's been a bit. That's been a bit. <laughs> oh, brilliant. It was, yeah. Uh, yeah, not, 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 yeah, nearly fell out that day. But that's, uh, that's another story altogether. <laughs> um, Phil, th- thanks for giving up your time coming on today. I think, I think we've, we've, it's been fascinating just listening to you about your experiences from coming through and, and sharing them stories of, of, of being at Namibia as well. I think there'll be a lot of stuff there that, that coaches can take away and stuff that they can sort of apply to their, their own environments as well. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, hopefully there's there's something there, as you say. I'm, I'm sure there is that people can... Uh, can sort of, uh, and you can summarise and they can take bits and pieces out of. But, you know, in summary, mate, it is, the, you know, the people-centred bit is so important. Look after, get to know your players, your staff, whatever levels you are, or your colleagues, your coaching colleagues, your medical, whatever they are. Get to know people first and foremost. And, and they understand that you have their best interests at heart, you know. Uh, develop them, you know, keep, keep, keep it fun, keep them learning. And then, you know, give them confidence, i.e., you know, they feel they're ready to play in whatever competition they are. So that's where, you know, being people-centred, development-driven and competitions is so important in, in modern-day coaching, really. And, and, and it all fits together holistically. It's not a silo-based approach. It's a holistic-based approach so yeah so thank yeah. you both it's been great thanks no, no. for me and thanks for having me on been great been a pleasure thanks Phil good stuff Harrison great great chat with Phil there uh, what 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 were some of the key things you took away from that anyway first of all yeah it was a great chat and um, you know once again um, similar to similar to Sergio's episode I could I could carry on speaking to Phil for, for another good, good, good few hours but we did all sorts of stories afterwards. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, he's um, more than just, you know, being an interesting bloke. He's got some interesting, you know, 
very interesting uh, thoughts around around his coaching and, and listening to him, you know, and that transition from amateur to professional and being part of that era at the same time was, was massive. And I think, you know, whether it's dealing with players and they spoke about also dealing with other coaches and, you know, SNCs, uh, you know, nutritionists, um, you know, the sports science guys, you know, it, they're all got to be on the same same wavelength. And I think the three the three words that kind of stuck out was that you know that that purpose, the clarity, and direction. And as long as everyone's on that on that same wavelength, then we can good, we're good to go forward. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, I mean, the, I agree. I think a lot of the stuff that Phil spoke about was was based on his various levels of experience that he's had. You know, he's, he's been a player, he's been a captain, he's been a coach, he's played you know, the, the top level, he's played at international level and he, he's took a little bit of all them scenarios and tried to create the best version that works for him. And, and I think that, that sort of, I think that really does align to a lot of the stuff that, that we spoke about with, with Sergio as well, about, you know, when he, we mentioned philosophy, some of the key stuff was around, you know, who am I and what am I about? And sort of the, what I got from Phil was that he had a real understanding of what he wanted to do to get the to, to, to shape his environment to get the best out of his teams and his players because I think that's the key thing he, he was people-centred development-driven and competition-ready that was sort of how he summed up his philosophy in a few words and I hope there was the, the, what was pleasing quite <laughs> pleasing is that there was a lot of common similarities before what we spoke about with Sergio and the serial winning coaches and what we've, we've learned from Phil in, in a practical environment yeah yeah and I think you know, I think once again it goes back to even even things we discussed in in season one about understanding understanding who who we are coaching and that and what and that is just the you know the fundamentals of of what good coaching looks like for me anyway. Um, you know, is understanding the participants and actually getting them together as a team. And you know, he spoke about uh, you know Phil come on we've got the recruitment side of. Of where he's worked and and how and how his selection processes work and you know, how he wants good people, not just good rugby players, you know, because you know especially in the environments that Phil's been working in, um, and even in the environments even if like lower down the level of grassroots once again, you know, we're seeing these people week in week out, and for a team to be successful and come together and have that and have that shared uh, shared purpose and shared aims. Um, to get to where they want to be in terms of success, you first of all you need to get on with each other. And if you've got an arsehole in your team, excuse my excuse my French, you know, it's only going to cause disruption within within that team environment. And I think I think Phil summed that up beautifully beautifully during 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 that, during that last conversation. But I mean, you see that you asked him a question about you know what what do you do if your vision, values, philosophy doesn't align to, to where you're going to go and his advice was and I've written it down in big capital letters here was don't take the job go go for the job where the culture fits and, and I think that's not just uh, coaching great bit of advice I think that's a, a life advice of if you're looking at moving into anything you know if, if you don't think it fits with your moral compass I suppose and your vision and how you are then look for something else I think that was something that really stood out for me how, how brutally honest he was sort of in the reality of what that looks like um, 
oh, it was eye opening. It was completely that was that was that was eye opening. That was yeah, that was a massive takeaway for me. Um, because the whole thing he spoke about throughout a lot of that was that understanding yourself and again that was something we touched on a lot with Sergio was around you know that do you understand yourself to then be able to transfer that to understand your players and then also within that he touched on that connecting that to how you get the best out of the environment that you're in because if you can understand yourself and then you can transition that to understand your players, you can build a real successful environment. And that success can be whatever standard you set up. And that's that's what he did with Namibia. He came in and they, he sort of got their idea of what high performance was, sort of told them what his version of high performance was, met in the middle of a common ground and then set some key performance indicators based on the things that they discussed. And yeah. I think that is something that you can do in any environment, whether it's business, coaching, amateur clubs, elite clubs. You can, you can still go through that process in order to be people-centered, development-driven, and competition-ready. Yeah, and I think he summarised that quite, quite, quite well with that the tra- traffic light system that he had for the for the players, um, you know, and, and and how they approached the 2015 towards and then the 2019. World Cup and how they and how they differed in terms of trying to get these players up to a green when they were in the amber and trying to get the players who were in the red into in, into the amber and then that, and that actually will look very different depending on the coach the coach themselves and how they, and their own philosophy and, and and where they where they rate and where they think high performance is com- is for them. Um, well, the, the best bit of takeaway was you know, wherever you go, wherever you go in the world. It's always beer that brings people together to get to create. When I asked him, I remember when I asked about what he did in Namibia to understand their culture, I thought he was going to give me a nice, profound answer about you know understanding a whole different foreign country that I had very little information about. And he turned around and just said, "Oh, that's what beer does for you." <laughs> I thought that was it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Beer is always the answer, Chris. It's always the answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, you're right it is it's the the best way to get an an idea of a culture you don't need to sit through PowerPoint presentations can't get wrong yeah and I think what was really interesting in that conversation about Namibia is how he approached the 2019 World Cup that they identified as Canada being the last game of the pool stages and they only wanted to come away with one win but they knew that right the games leading up to them against New Zealand and South Africa and Italy were going to be the tough ones and that right, if we can hit these key performance indicators like you like you've spoken about, they knew that they could go into that last game against Canada, who were only three places above them in the world rankings, and challenge them for victory. And to break that down, you know, is giving the players that is giving the players that, that that purpose. Right, they've identified the fixture. What are we going to do as a collective to get there? And that and that's where it feels philosophy really really shone through for me. Um, it being that really people-centred, um, that real people-centred uh, environment, you know, putting them first and, and helping them to get to, to get to where they want to achieve. And for Namibia, that was you know, national pride. Definitely. And any, you know, he talks about um, giving them examples of connection to the flag for, for some of the stuff that they were referring to, sort of on and off field about you know the, the rising sun and, and other things. And I think that was that was quite interesting. I think. 
what was really important that we touched on with with Sergio, we mentioned it in the reflections with him, and it's something that came out of the paper around that work-life balance, was when he spoke about self-care and when he, he actually realised that he needed to take time out. Because even with all of his jobs, I know at the moment, back with Leeds, is he still commuting up from, from Wales? You know, as he said to me a, few, a couple of weeks ago, it's a lot easier than travelling to Africa because um, he was still living in Wales and travelling to Namibia. So, you know, you need to make sure that you're finding that balance. And he spoke about the importance of spending time with family um, and, and making sure that he, he does take that time out to just switch off and refocus and re-energise before he goes back out to where it is that, that he's coaching at that particular point. I thought that was really, I think, really honest and open conversation with him there about sort of how he, how he did that. Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying there about understanding self and actually knowing when we need to take a deep breath and, and remove ourselves from the situation. And actually, I think, you know, later on in the season, we have got an episode dedicated to, um, you know, that how, how we can all be better as, as coaches at understanding ourselves and how that does look like, um, how, how that looks and how that can actually be positively imprinted um, on our athletes. So, that's one to look forward to in the future. But no, I was really, I love that, love, love, love that conversation. I thought it was a great chat with Phil, and you know, I, I, I've really taken a lot, a lot from it. Hundred percent, definitely agree. Another good one to tick off. So, cheers again. Another good episode, Harrison. Well done. Um, we'll uh, we will we'll be back in two weeks with uh, with episode three of season two, and we'll see you next time. Cheers for listening. Don't forget to join in the discussion at Big Breakdown HQ on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.